Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to part two of the 75th anniversary team. If you missed part one, that was uh, two episodes ago during the preseason, kind of around that time. We started talking about the 75th anniversary team and predicting what the list would be. And now the NBA, they said, we're going to get this baby out right at the beginning of the season. They've announced the 75 greatest players ever. And back to help me sort through it and then complete the whole purpose of the podcast. We were just going to have like a 30-minute podcast a couple weeks ago on a 75 uh, anniversary team ballot. And now he's back for hour number three. (laughs) Live from someplace in the Midwest, Cody Hodek. Deep, deep in the woods right now. And I think the surprise that your listeners don't know is we're actually just going to rewatch the 73 finals and talk about how excellent that next team was. That's all this episode is going to be today. You, you're, you're, you're exaggerating a touch. We were going to mix in the 1970 finals as well. You know, the Knicks did win two championships in the early 70s. So, Oh, that's, that's very true. This is just going to be the Knicks-centric podcast today. Man. I, I got so confused. So let's talk about the, the 75, which is really 76 players because of a voting tie. Um, I ended up having basically one enormous problem with the list that I didn't know I was having until they released the final 25 players and it all became clear. Cody, they essentially just took the 50 list and added 25 new players. And I, I have a problem with that. I think we actually talked about this the first time when we talked, that that might be a possibility for what they did. did was that intentional? Do you know if, if that's actually what they intended to do I'm here? trying to find out if it was intentional. I, I have no idea if it was one of those things where just the way it was presented, enough people checked the names next to someone on the 75 ballot already. Mm. It's, you know, it's possible they did something like that. Um, I, I don't know. I do find it hard to believe that if you sent just free-form ballots out to people and said, give me your top 75 list, even if it was a lot of kind of old-timers, I find it impossible to to believe we'd get the exact same 50. I mean, Dave Bing is... And I like Dave Bing as a player. He's a solid player. But Dave Bing getting in again, this isn't someone that I've really heard anyone ever talk about as a top 100 player in almost any platform from any perspective. And so seeing that as a coincidence, it just seems impossible to me. It had to be the kind of thing where they were just shooing in 25 new guys. Yeah, I feel like the burden of proof would be tougher to take someone off that list as opposed to fully bringing in some new talent. So if they literally just had those players first, I'm assuming people just kind of clicked those a lot more. Not saying that it was, uh, you know, they didn't know exactly what they were doing, but I think it's a lot easier to be like, yeah, that person should probably make it if they made it before. But it reveals my problem with that method which is there's two big problems with it we just we alluded to them or discussed them last time i can't remember the first is you are beholden to the 
sort of um, thoughts and archetypes of the time. Like, like if they, you know, they did this in 1979 and they didn't realize jump shooting was important or something like that. So you're completely stuck with that perspective. Um, you don't get the additional knowledge gain we've had about the league from more information, more research, larger larger data samples, things like that. And then the second thing is you're stuck to just the perspective of that voting body. I mean, we're not talking about hundreds or thousands of people who go through, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, like basketball PhD schools and then come out and give, right, like give some sort of balanced uh, uh, ballot. It, we're just talking about 20, 30 kind of pseudo random media members and folks, uh, players and stuff like that. And so you're stuck with their perspective. And, and it's just weird. Now we're in the 76 season. And like, Dave Bing is on that team. And, we, and there's plenty of others we could talk about. But it just gets strange. I also find it strange that you're really not adding 25 players for 25 years because the guys who were in the middle of their career, Reggie Miller, Gary Payton, um, some other members that we'll talk about that are might maybe on my team that didn't make the list, like they really weren't considered after year four or five during 1996, but they came into the league in the late 80s and early 90s. And at this point, a lot of people look at them and say, hey, maybe they should be one of the 75 greatest players. So it's weird that we have this list now that really heavily indexes on the past and the 1970-73 New York Knicks. (laughs) Yeah, that's... And I mean, this was the challenge for me. I was was thinking about, you know, I think it was last night, and I'm like, I'm going to put together my own list just so I can compare it. And then I started thinking, should I have like 10 people from each decade? And then as soon as I thought that, I'm like, I have to stop right here. I'm not going any further. So I, I still don't know a good way to... Uh, incorporate some of the older players because if you have a voting body that's going to be more recent, like you said, people don't talk about Dave Bing. That's not a player that people are going to take to Twitter and be like, how dare Dave Bing make this team or not make this team or something like this. So I I still don't know where I sit on this conversation because I do want it to uh, index for older players as well. Um, but now you have me thinking about what it would look like if somebody majored in the NBA and what that coursework <laughs> would look like. But that, that's a conversation for another day. Well, I think... Um we can there's going to be some players that made the list that i did not really consider as final candidates do you want to maybe mention them first they're just mostly the old guys that i we kind of talked about last time that i think to some degree i expected to be left off but obviously no one was getting left off the the joke was on us yes let's let's start with those and then get into some of the the meteor hotter takes i've seen around okay so I would drop these. These are not people that kind of uh, I agonized over, and I've agonized way too much about this list. I'm still agonizing it. <laughs> Why did I do this? How did I end up get? I wasn't even going to do this, and somehow I ended up trying to make a, a 75th anniversary team ballot. And I'm phrasing it that way deliberately because we will talk about my criteria in a second. Um, Good. So these are guys that I did not agonize over: Tiny Archibald, Lenny Wilkins. Dave DeBusher, Earl Monroe, the entire New York Knicks team, Jerry Lucas, uh, Dave Bing, Billy Cunningham, who I like, but I think losing the ABA years also hurts him, and Pete Maravich. Yeah, and a couple of those players, when I was starting to go through their profiles, like Lenny Wilkins, for instance, is he the only player on this list that never made an all-league team? Is that possible? Is anyone else in there with him? Wow, we have the... uh, 
we have it right up here. We should be able to figure this out relatively quickly. Did Bob Lanier make the list? The final 75 list? He did not. Because he's no, the, he's no a, Bob Lanier did. Yeah, so You're he's right. which is even weirder, by the way, because he was better than Dave Bing. Like I don't know who thought Dave Bing was better than Bob Lanier. It's so strange. And I think what happened is when they went to vote in 1996, especially back then, using All Star games and all NBA all NBA teams and MVP finishes as an indicator. Lanier kind of famously didn't make an All NBA team in the 70s, and the reason for this. Cody, I hope you're sitting down, is because there were two spots for centers. One of them was guaranteed to go to a fellow named Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And then you had like Willis Reed, Dave Cowens, Bill Walton. Uh, Like, okay, yeah, you're the third best center in the NBA, but you might be the fourth or fifth best player in the whole league. It's it's very strange. No, and he had a really solid package, too. He had a strong face-up game. He was, you know, not like creating shots for teammates, but he could pass the ball a bit. He was a big bruiser. He seemed like the kind of guy that people would have liked back then and be like, this is an impactful player right now. He he felt like a snub to me in 96 and and we'll talk about we'll talk about my agonizing over him as we go through these decades. Um anyone else before we kind of go through what ended up being my ballot, we'll we'll get to my criteria. Uh, you know, Marovich also seems I think of those players, probably the player that I would take off first. Yeah, because Maravich is, is this is where it gets weird. He's obviously a cultural icon, highly aesthetic player, like between the flair on the jumper, the hair flopping in the wind on the fast break, and some of the creativity with the passes. Last time we talked about that pass I tweeted where he underhand scooped at 80 feet. LaMelo Ball has since made a very similar pass. So yep. you have this you have this one component of him that maybe drives people toward fandom or saying like, I love watching this guy. But for me, I think there's got to be, and and I'll say my criteria, which I'll outline in detail is based on how you play. And if we're looking at like the effectiveness of how you play and the impact of your performance, I don't know if there's a player in NBA history that has a greater disconnect between his aesthetic and his like raw points per game both in college and the NBA, and his actual impact and what was happening with his teams. He has one of the strangest MVP finishes ever. I think he finished like third in a year where his team won 35 or 38 games. I just I just think because so many people were waiting for the ascension of Maravich, but it just never happened because I don't think his style of play was particularly effective i don't think he was a, a negative player or anything like that but there's such a gulf between his reputation and like what seemed to actually be going on out there and if we're if people voted him in just for the aesthetics and the impact he had on the culture of basketball there's another player that's mostly in the post 2000s that is also extremely aesthetic and in my opinion much more impactful that did not make the list so that's that's in that sort of vein so i are you going to tell me who that player is? Or Should is, we do is, that first? Is it someone that is on my list of guys to get to? Yes, it's, it's somebody that is on your list right now. Okay, excellent. So we'll get to him. Yes. Okay, so here's, here's what I want to do. I want to start basically at the beginning of the league, and this, this time we'll go through chronolog- chronologically by the year they debuted. And hopefully this kind of highlights how I'm trying to capture the first 
10 or 20 years. And then the evolution of that as the game continues to expand, um, as the talent pool expands both domestically and then ultimately internationally after the ABA merger and through the 90s and all that stuff. So that's the, that's the plan. My criteria, I mean, obviously some people like to do things like cultural impact. I think that's a different list in terms of just the spirit of capturing this stuff. Um, they like to do things like rings and championship moments. Again, that feels weird to me because if you're asking, if you're asking me to figure out who impacted basketball in a certain way, that is so heavily dependent upon your teammates and to some degree your coaching. Um, so I'm trying to keep it focused on how much I think they actually moved the needle. But I didn't just want to do like the top 75 careers. And the biggest reason for this is I did the top 40 careers a couple years ago. When you start to get outside that range, the players get so close together in career value that if you have like a 10% change in your opinion, you say, oh, I think, I think his offense was like 10% more effective during an average prime season. And you change that. The player's consistent for like seven or eight years. And you change that. On a list like that, you'll see a player go from 83rd to 53rd. They're just all so jammed together. And so it felt weird to me to just say, I'm just going to try to do the most valuable careers out ad infinitum. And you tell me when to put the cutoff. I think that's a less exciting list than again, a 75th anniversary team. Like, what do I want to celebrate and capture on that team while also being true to how they play on the court? So for me, it's, I want to hit the best careers. I want to hit the best peaks. That essentially means I want to hit the best primes. And I also would love, if it's a tiebreaker or something like that, I'd love to make sure on this team, I get like the best playmakers, the best scorers, the best defenders. I want to, I want to have a, a, sort of like a holistic story of the strategy and tactical success of the NBA on the court through its players. And I think that's it's really tricky to get through based on how they named this team. Like I was just looking to see if they called it the greatest or the top 75, but it looks like it's specifically the 75th anniversary team. That's right. So you can literally take that any direction you want. And even based on what you just said, um, it sounds like you're going to sort of incorporate your your core model, your champ- championships over replacement player model. But you're also going to be incorporating different uh, aspects of how players impacted whatever it is that they were really good at, whether it be scoring or playmaking or whatever else. So it, it even seems with you that you're going to be toying around a little bit in real time as you're making it. Like you didn't just pick uh, you didn't just pick one specific um, criteria and be like, this is going to be the criteria that I use picking this. You're going to kind of fudge it around a little bit. The big, right? one, the big ones were definitely career and peak because I feel like when we think about what it means to see the greatest basketball players, the best basketball players, if you're making a distinction between greatest and best. We kind of think about it in that, in that vein, like in those terms. I think that's the spirit of that. So if you capture guys who have great peaks and you capture guys who had great careers and you essentially bring along the guys with great five, seven-year primes, things like that, I think you cover most of your bases. The other things to me are almost tiebreakers, like... It's you could because you could split hairs on so many of the players at the end of the yep. list, and we'll we'll try to do that. I ended up I had a little note. Um, I ended up with about fifty five or fifty six guys that I was really comfortable with, and then I had that left me nineteen spots, and I had over thirty players 
Uh, I don't know the final number. It might have been 40 players for those 19 spots. So that kind of puts into perspective the hair splitting that has to take place. And another reason why I thought for this exercise, and we won't have much further ado, we'll jump right in after this, but I thought, let's talk about all of those guys. Let's talk about those 40 guys, if you will, and make that the core of the podcast and those other 55 locks. I mean, we all know who they are. We all know that like Judd Bushler and Bill Wennington and all the great 96 Chicago Bulls players are getting on the team. Wait, what? <laughs> I was thinking about my next point. I caught Cody sleeping out there, there. Like, oh my goodness. I, I was thinking too far ahead here. So. I meant Jordan and Pippen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, if if you want to know a little bit of background information for the prep here, Ben was literally 30 seconds before hitting the record button being like, all right, we need to fill a couple of these spots here. Who are we going to put in? So this is literally a splitting hairs exercise. Yeah, no, literally. I I split a few hairs while I did it. Um, It's agonizing. It's horrible. I don't know why anyone would do it. So let's do it, Cody. Let's do it. (laughs) Without further ado, uh, starting, starting in the 40s, man, we go way back. Mm-hmm. I have George Mikan. Is, is that good? Great. I think that's a no-brainer. Just how dominant he was. I do think handling the earlier part of the of the league is trickier because the talent pool what wasn't what it was because the economics weren't what they were, and so I'm trying to continue to tell that story with the important actors, but also keep in mind that like the way I think of it is if they they created a pro league in 1892 right after James Naismith invented the game and it had like 500 people, I wouldn't feel compelled to grab the best player from those 500 people. Okay. I think that sounds good. Is that, is that reasonable? That's reasonable. Next name, Dolph Shays. Uh, for those who don't know, kind of like OG stretch big, great scorer, great player, great pedigree, championship pedigree. I've seen people question him, I think because of his archaic name. We talked about that last time. But I think of these early 50s guys, uh, he, was an, he was someone who was also able to sustain success and had great skill shooting the ball for his size as the league continued to evolve. And that's something I look at. Like, if the league is rapidly evolving and you fade out as a player at 27 years old, that is kind of a red flag to me, or at least something that I kind of view as a demerit. Whereas being able to sustain your success, and Bill Russell is probably the ultimate example of this, like we talk about the 70 and 73 Knicks. The Celtics went back to back in 68 and 69, and they beat that Knicks team in 69 when they were formed playing great basketball. They beat the super team Lakers in the finals with Wilt and Elgin Baylor and Jerry West. That team a couple years later in a slightly different incarnation would win 69 games like they that that back to back alone at the end of the decade would have been phenomenal but then when you add in the nine other championships i'm like oh it's probably it's probably pretty good <laughs> it's probably probably pretty sustainable success so a couple other players from that era and then if you have anything to poke me on you can jump in uh, paul well, i have a question about Dolph shays actually yeah go ahead so see i He's the type of guy who led the league in rebounding. He led the league in free throw shooting a couple of times. He shot like 90% a couple of times. Is he like the first big man that was actually a really good mid-range shooter or free throw shooter? Yeah, I think so. Uh, another name here for me, and we might as well get to him now in this conversation, is Neil Johnston. That's another name most people don't know. He was a crazy good scorer. Also popularized this like hook shot, sweeping hook shot thing 
than he had. And he was shooting like 55, 56% in true shooting when the league average was 45%. Hmm. The issue with him, there's a couple things. One, he injures his knee when he's like 27 or 28 years old, and that's pretty much it. Uh, Two, he never gets the MVP love from the voters that his teammate Paul Arizon does. And to some degree, they add add another guy named Tom Gola. It's kind of an all-around player. Uh, And he even got more MVP love than Johnston. So those two things kind of hold me back a little bit. Mm -hmm. But... And the third, the third thing, I guess, is that he's, by reputation, and if you look at some of the film that's available, he doesn't seem to be an impact defensive player. No one was really writing articles about his, his defense. So he's another name, the 56 Warriors championship team, um, where you go, boy, is this a guy that I should include in this like 15 or 20 years to start the league? As one of the key figureheads, the impact, the the performance, the ability. He was like an 80, off the top of my head, 81, 82% free throw shooter at his peak. So obviously has some skill shooting. You could see it on tape, hits jumpers and things like that. But I think in the playoffs, between the playoffs and the MVP voting, I think his teammate Paul Arizon is the one to give it to because Arizon has tremendous longevity through this period. I think he makes 10 All-Star games in 10 seasons that he played and he missed two seasons for military service. Yeah. Another one of those players that when you look at a lot of the categories, he's just leading in, you know, over 40 minutes per game, uh, really efficient scorer with, uh, you know, it doesn't look great now, but like 44% uh, shooting leading the league in scoring. So yeah, just across the board, a really effective looking player when just looking at the box score. Okay. So for me, it's Arizona in Neil Johnston out. If if you're wondering, like, are we going to go through every player? No, it's just some of these some of these early names. I think are worth explaining. Kind of building the team. These are the historical foundations of the team, if you will. Then you get to the Celtics, and for me, it was picking between one of their offensive figureheads of the '50s and then into the early '60s, Bill Bill Sharman or Bob Cousy. I went back and forth on these guys, honestly. Kuzi ended up being voted MVP. I do not trust the MVP voting from that time um, for many reasons, but it's the kind of thing where that, of course, is a data point that his peers thought he was better than Charmin. Kuzi made 13 All-Star games. Charmin made eight, so maybe you could say Kuzi has a little better longevity, but Charmin was like, to me the OG outside sharpshooter, just a crazy good shooter, seems to have all... like In my statistical uh, box model that goes back to the 50s, Charmin is the one with better numbers than Kuzi. It feels weird having two of them, though, because I don't really see any evidence that the Celtics... They never really had an offensive dynasty, you know? They were pretty good, and they had this good backcourt. It's kind of like... Dame Lillard and CJ McCollum both making the all NBA team over and over again. It's just something, something wouldn't add up if that were the case. Yeah. So I agonized a lot about this and I'm going to go with Koozie. I think that's probably the right choice. Like when you get into the NBA, I feel like a lot of the older school documentaries that watch always talks about Bob Cousy and Charmin is kind of just someone else that's on the side. But I do have to say going back and watching some of the, the Charmin film, it is shocking how modern of a shooter he looks. I mean, he's taking DHOs and like pulling up with a really quick yes. release. 
it's it's crazy. He shot like 96.6% from the free throw line on five and a half attempts in the 59 playoffs. Like this dude, it, it's unbelievable. Go watch some Bill Sharman highlights. It will shock you how fluid of a shooter this guy was. And I think that's that's part of the goal. And I'm glad you're here as as a sort of soundboard because the names, if, if you just took the stock names that we all have seen now, either the original 50 or just some of the other lists that you constantly see, I, I don't necessarily know if you're learning anything or kind of un- unveiling anything about NBA history. But when you go back, I, I know it feels weird, but I do think there's a really great argument that Sharman was the better offensive player, not Kuzi. But just the handful of guys that voted on this thing back in the day were like, no, Kuzi is the guy. He Have you seen him dribble? Have you seen his behind-the-back passes? He's the one. And in reality, w- one thing we know for certain, we know that a lot of folks didn't understand the importance of efficiency, both at a team level, per possession, and at an individual level. And we, the reason we know that is because it's 70 years later, and a lot of people still... Uh, kind of turn their nose up at the concept of efficiency. I think it's finally taken hold at a team level uh, in the last few years. But it was something, as I've talked about many times, when I was growing up in the 90s, if you were if you were the Nuggets and you played really fast, you had the best offense in the league, even though your efficiency might have been 20th. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, going back to that conversation, too, I think Kuzi is the right choice, because if we're if we are splitting hairs, like it sounds like you are, I think that cultural significance, the reverence with which people speak about Kuzi, I, I feel like that's the sort of thing you got to give a player an edge for. So I'm, I'm definitely on board with you going his direction. Mike, my, my question criteria wise, and it applies to Kuzi and it applies to guys today, it spans the entire history is how do you deal with misapplied sort of impact Mm. like like what if people thought the best way to play was the way koozie played just let it all hang out you know maybe it turns out i'm making this up but maybe it turns out he has a lot of turnovers too but who cares because he's the flashiest passer and he scores a lot but his efficiency is terrible and he turns it over and he doesn't play defense like if they rewarded that is that the kind of thing that you want to acknowledge on your team so you can talk about how they misapplied the concept? Or do you say, no, 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 what ended up happening was they thought it was Kuzi or Pete Maravich or whoever it is, and the real guy that was driving it was Bill Sharman. I don't know the answer, but I do know I want to talk about Bob Pettit and one of his teammates before we get out of the 50s. Ooh, now I'm intrigued. Please continue. Okay, so... The Hawks won the 1958 championship. They were the only team to win a title in the kind of Russell streak before Wilt's um, 76ers did in 1967. Boy, that's a that's a mouthful, 76ers in 67. <laughs> so, so the Hawks win this title in 1958. Bob Pettit is an MVP-level player. Uh, but in the two years the Hawks make these great runs, the guy who stands out statistically and and also i should say in writing if you like go back and find game recaps the guy who really pops for the hawks is cliff hagan who is an old kentucky guard and cliff hagan in my box model as well basically has the best numbers until you get to the uh wilt jerry west oscar robertson like that that quartet of the 60s like for him having the numbers he had at the end of the 50s as a scorer, as an overall kind of offensive player, he seems to be the one, at least statistically, 
who was driving more offense in those playoff runs for St. Louis. But of course, Pettit is the guy and Pettit had a 50 point game at the end of the finals. And so he's the guy who gets all the flowers. I'm going to go crazy and I'm going to, I think Hagen for a peak in the first 15 years of the league has a, has like a serious argument for one of the better peaks in the first 15 years. I think I'm going to put both of them on. I think that's probably the right decision, but something that I want to ask you is, you know, you look at the statistical profile and again, I want to emphasize that people are going to be like, Oh, this guy just keeps referencing the box score. There's really not a ton of other data you can really get into without super, super diving into each one of these players. So I apologize if I'm a broken record on this, but Cliff Hagen, like you said, again, was like their most efficient and most voluminous scorer in the playoffs, even over Bill Pettit. Uh, Bill Pettit? What was that? Bob Pettit. <laughs> There's a lot <laughs> of Bills and Bobs. and Yeah. And, yeah. But why, why does Bob Pettit get the cultural significance and not Cliff Hagen? Like, why do you think that's the case? I, I, I mean, part of it is the longevity where Pettit ended up, you know, making 11 All-NBA teams. And some of it just could be... Back then, it was a big man's league, and it outside of maybe Koozie, I mean, even when I mentioned Bob Davies, like this first 15 years of the league or so, even even carrying on for another five or 10 years after, it's very hard for guards to break through and get a lot of respect. And what we've seen happen is, as we've gotten more data, we know big men tend to make a huge impact defensively. And it was thought back then... You just run closer to the basket, you catch the ball, and that's the way to get the most effective shot. And so big men were often leaders in volume. Um, Sometimes they may have been leaders in efficiency, but they weren't creating offense in the way that we see in the last 30 or 40 years among the great kind of offensive engines. They weren't helping five. They were more helping one in most of those models. And so in a way, they had it completely backwards. They were valuing the big man, but they were valuing him for offense. And so I think that's why sometimes on these teams, you see a guy like Cliff Hagen, um, maybe with the, with the Royals, as I mentioned, you see a Bob Davies, you see these guys kind of get pushed down by the big man who was the centerpiece, pun intended, of the team. Okay, and that makes sense. And even if offensive rebounds are a big part of it, is it could it possibly be the case that there are so many possessions that a couple of offensive rebounds isn't going to swing it as much as maybe it would have in the early 2000s, late 90s or something like that? I think I think rebounding was probably more important back then because of the style. Um, yeah, I just I think that's part of it. I think that's part of the story. You, these big men can have offensive value. Some of them may have been at the top of the league in terms of the best offensive players. But just compared to the way we think of it now, I think mm-hmm. they had it flipped a little bit. Uh, all right, let's move on. People's people's eyes are glazing over. They think we're going to take this long on every. No, we have a se- we have a series of locks and slam dunks before we kind of get to our next um, nitpicking hair, hair. What are we calling it? Hair splitting situation so bill russell's obviously a yes um elgin baylor's obviously a yes wilt chamberlain's obviously a yes jerry west oscar robertson john havelcheck came in in 1963 of this group of this class both sam jones and hal greer made the top 50 list cliff hagan by the way did not make the top 50 list everyone else uh besides neil johnston and bob davies made i keep saying the top 50 the top 75 (laughs) 70. I thought you were referencing the 90s list, and I'm like, yeah, uh, no. that's what he's talking Sorry, about. Sorry, I'm already, I'm already losing it. This is, this is fantastic radio right here. Uh, 
Sam Jones and Hal Greer, I ended up going out on both of them. I think they both have a good case. They were on my bubble. I like both of them as players. I think in many ways they were the fifth, sixth, seventh, whatever it is, best players of the 60s. And I don't think either of them has enough of a peak to really jump out and talk about from a peak perspective. And I don't think even era adjusted, either of them have the longevity to really push them in and say like, I I don't know the count, Cody, but I think for me, like if you're like top 50 longevity, you're pretty safe. I didn't have enough peaks that I wanted to discuss that would push you out if you had like the 47th best longevity, but you didn't have a high peak. That's a spoiler for a player who came in in the 80s. Mm-hmm. So Sam Jones, talking about him. So you you also cut Bill Sharman, right? I cut Bill Sharman. I only want to take one of those Celtics backward yep. guys. Yeah. If you if you had to take either Sam Jones or Bill Sharman on this list, like let's say we boiled it down to these two, both of these guys that started off on the bench for the Celtics, which one of those two are you going to take? Well, I think era adjusted, you could make an argument Sharman's longevity gets him a little more mileage. I, I think I'm slightly more impressed with Sam, but of course we have more footage and and knowledge about Sam, and they both kind of in ways have modern games, but Sam mm-hmm. Sam to some degree has a more modern game. So I I think does that not answer your question? Because that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to avoid answering it as best as possible. I think that's totally okay. I think the question's point was to get some dialogue about those two because those are the two comparisons I was thinking of. Something else about Sam Jones that I just absolutely loved and I wanted him on the list for this is he came at Wilt Chamberlain with a stool once during a game, like went to the sideline and picked up a stool. And apparently, according to Sam afterwards, Sam said, uh, I mean, Wilt says, Sam, I'm going to make you eat that stool. And Sam responds and says, Wilt, I'm going to crack your kneecaps. So that's a thing that happened. Uh, moving on. Um <laughs> Nate Thurmond. Nate Thurmond is on my team. He was on the bubble-ish, but I just think his peak, I think his peak is too strong. He was injured a lot. He missed a lot of time. But the thing with Nate is when you talk about access to certain non-box score numbers, we can look at the time he missed, and it is consistently fantastic. He's one of the better players of the first like 30 or 40 years in terms of looking like he was very, very valuable to his teams. And then we can also look at what happens when he faced other all-star centers, other elite centers. And it seems to confirm he's having pretty significant impact on the defensive end by reputation, widely considered one of the great defenders ever uh, by historians and statistical historians, if you will. And that was just too much for me. That, That peak that he essentially has and capturing a guy who's like, along with Wilt and Russell, just the the great defensive force of the first 25 years of the league so a question i had about nate thurman this is his defensive impact is unquestionable but when you look at once again looking at the box score his assist numbers were pretty close to even uh even close to barry on that that finals run in 67 so how how do you see thurman's impact when you consider passing as well well i think it's a little bit like bill russell in that You have to wonder if they were negatives because of some of the scoring and shooting numbers. But passing and Thurman, just like Russell, the ability to play at the elbow, high post, whatever, and and play these two or three man games with little handoffs or little backdoor passes. I mean, that seems to be something that offsets it. And 
much like Russell, I don't know if you can make a good argument that he's like a very good offensive player, but there's probably an argument where you've got all this defensive impact and then you've got some positive offensive impact, especially depending on your team. And I think that's the key for a couple of players that will probably come up later in this conversation. But if you have that much of a defensive impact and your offense is at least hovering around neutral or even slightly positive, that's going to help your case significantly more. Yeah, and, I, and, and back in that day before the three-point era, like if you were that much of an outlier, you could have the – I want to say your defensive impact that, back then was the equivalent to like – the sixth best offensive player today or something like like a high all nba team kind of offensive guard who maybe doesn't do much on defense that's what we're talking about here we're talking about massive massive defensive impact and that's shown i guess especially with russell i remember in your top 40 uh list that russell celtics the defenses are just off the charts and unlike anything we've seen relative to to other great defenses in history. So you can see that progression going throughout. And Thurmond was definitely right in that time frame. So that makes a ton of sense. Okay, a ton of locks here. It's going to jump us to a new decade. Uh, Willis Reed. Well, I should say Willis Reed. I, I don't know if he's a lock, but I think his peak right around the turn of the 70s, and he was actually one MVP, I think it was enough for me. Uh, Rick Barry, Walt Frazier, Elvin Hayes. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Dave Cowens. Let's talk about Hayes and Wes Unseld. I, I kind of went back and forth. Like, maybe only one of those dudes who were teammates in the front court for a decade on solid but not spectacular Washington teams. Maybe I only want one of them. I, I, I ended up giving it to Hayes. I just think he has more sustained longevity. He's another player, much like telling the story of the game we've talked about so far with big men who I think was lauded for his scoring numbers but if you look at his efficiency it was terrible and if you watch their games his shot selection was l questionable Cody it was uh <laughs> it was problematic he he had the green light but you know as we'll get to more later with one or two other key figures in league history having the green light to hit shots at 35% is not necessarily a good thing. And it's hard for the eye to perceive the difference between making mid-range shots at 35% and making them at 42%. But that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a huge value add. So all of this is to say that I actually like Hayes as a defensive player. And I think his argument here has to be sustained defense over the course of the decade. Unseld is a guy who, like, if I'm thinking about a team... And I want... Man, I'm going to talk myself into Unseld. I, he, he seems to be more of the embodiment of this alternate kind of high IQ basketball player doing all the little things, filling in and providing value on both ends of the court without scoring, passing, rebounding, famous for obliterating people with screens, really good, smart defender, a powerful defender that in some ways paired really well with a vertical weak side shot blocker like Elvin Hayes. Cody, help me. I'm now I'm back to splitting hairs. So something w- that I uncovered about uh, Wes Unseld that I wanted to ask you about is he won finals MVP in 78, I believe, when they won the championship. Yep, that's right. So in 78, he won finals MVP, and he did so averaging nine and a half points a game and 12 rebounds a game. So 
I'm I would really love to be able to go back and hear the conversation from people who are voting on that and people who are talking about that as much as people were talking about it at that time. How, what was he doing on the court that was so valuable that offset a uh, you know pretty paltry scoring numbers, especially for a, an award that's often given to the highest scorer? So he was never a volume scorer type, even when he won MVP as a rookie. In 1969, he was 15, 16 points a game, something like that. And once he really hurt his knee, you can see the beginning of his career, his scoring is a little bit higher. It's like 12 to 16 points a game. But once he hurt his knee, he lost a little of the bounce. So you're kind of left with a guy that can maybe make spot-up jumpers, things like that. he's, He's bruising but doesn't have a lot of moves. And this reputation for him carried throughout his career of being a sage, wise leader, a good passer, smart player, doesn't take stuff off the table. Uh, as I said, just the reputation is arguably the best screener ever, um, smart defender. And so as that team progressed, remember they, they had success in the second half of the 70s and they get to the finals again in 78 and they win the finals. I think Wes is sort of the embodiment of this team intangible do-it-all leadership defense it's the remember it's the era of walton it's post russell it's they're they're looking for this meanwhile elvin hayes there are other scorers on that team and elvin hayes didn't really have the greatest reputation as a um i mean he i think he was kind of thought of as like a a curmudgeonly kind of figure so maybe that I think that those two things with voters probably had them going, oh, the way this team plays and the fact that they finally won, that's that's Wes's baby. It's so shocking to me to see a player that averaged the seventh most points per game on a team winning finals MVP. Like that seems like a pretty radical uh, decision that they made back then. So uh, based on everything that you just said, it seems like you really want to choose Unseld for this. That is correct. That is correct, Cody. The spirit of this exercise has there. And this is the thing, like there are many players I want to choose and I don't, I don't have like the, the right feel. I don't know. Maybe I should take Unseld. Are you talking me into Wes Unseld live while we're recording the show? I, I think so. I think your, your words are saying one thing, but your vibes are saying something else. And I think you have to go with your vibes in this case. I do. Maybe I have to. You do. I don't know. Elvin Hayes played for so long. This is. You just told me he was selfish and had a terrible (laughs) demeanor and didn't do all of the little things that Unsell did. This is like you. You're Uh, Mister Scalable and Portable. I know. It's all. It's all backwards. All right. Let's change it. We're going to change it on the fly. Okay. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is next. I don't think we have to discuss him. Dave Cowens is a pretty easy lock for me. I think is. His peak is fantastic. The easiest way to describe him, I once heard him called uh, Baby KG. I think high nope. post, stretch player, drive from the top, passer, point center kind of guy, offense, super high motor, really good defender. Julius Irving, George Gervin, all in this time period. Okay, now there's a couple guys that really, oh, really bothered me here. Um, Bob McAdoo and Bob Lanier. We're back with more Bobs. Bills and Bobs are very popular in the first 25 years of the NBA. That's what I'm saying. I'm going to defend myself on that one earlier. You could just throw out Bill or Bob, and you're probably right. <laughs> Bill, I mean, Bill Walton's coming up. So Bob Lanier, I'm not sure, probably 1974, 1973 off the top of my head, finished really high in MVP voting. 
and I'm not quite sure if his peak would be enough to get there for me. But then he also has like a nice decade of success in Detroit. And I look at stuff in your post-prime, sometimes in your pre-prime, as a really interesting indicator and signal. It goes back to what we just talked about with Unselled or Haze, where when I get stuck, maybe defaulting to things you feel more comfortable with, the purity of the game, um, fit, portability, teamwork, like that stuff is the stuff that pulls me in a particular direction. So I find it compelling with Lanier that he was traded to Milwaukee in 1980 off the top of my head and after that trade the bucks kind of exploded and he was able to excel a bit more as a defensive specialist you know in his 30s later in his career things like that are really compelling to me when you can go to different situations and succeed in slightly different ways and you go from one team in detroit remember there wasn't as much player movement in the 60s and 70s i think this is part of what's lost and what's worth discussing about picking some of the older players to represent these times and the kind of zeitgeist. It's like, oh, that guy didn't do anything. Dave uh, Bob Lanier didn't do anything. He didn't make an all-NBA team, and they didn't make the playoffs that often. Yeah, he was stuck with Dave Bing. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is, how do you feel about the fact that he didn't see great playoff success until he actually was traded to Milwaukee that had a much stronger core around which he surrounded himself? I mean, I think the brief the briefness of what I've seen against the other great centers. So Lanier famously didn't make it because of all those great centers uh, onto an all NBA team, as we said earlier, and just the way he played against them, both statistically in the games that you can find publicly, he just looks like one of the better players in the league to me. And like I said, I don't look at him and say like top three, top four player, really, really strong MVP candidate, but I think he was good enough that when you do it for a decade, and then you transition to Milwaukee, and it still looks really good, but in a different way. I, I don't know. He was one of uh, Cody. I think he was literally the last guy I put in. But yes, yeah, yes, he was. Yeah, but I, I think it's enough. Whereas the other Bob we just mentioned, Bob McAdoo. Oh boy, we could probably do a whole podcast on Bob McAdoo. I like his peak, but I think it's become overrated in the sense that people look at the box score numbers. They're like, holy moly, this guy averaged 35 points a game. He must have been insane. He won MVP, finished in the top two or three of MVP voting for like two or three straight years. But it's the opposite story with McAdoo. The rest of his career, it doesn't work. And what's the explanation for this? Well, we know he was playing in a system with Jack Ramsey, where Jack Ramsey was an innovative kind of ahead of his time coach, especially for using big men. And... McAdoo was a power forward who Ramsey said, we're going to play small ball. We're going to slide you up to center. So you have a massive advantage, especially as a big man who can put it on the deck against slower footed traditional fives of the seventies. And as time moved on, like that just does not seem to be sustainable. The two player, the player I always link with McAdoo in the modern times is Amari Stoudemire because he got to slide up and play center for the Suns. So I like Amari Stoudemire's peak, but I don't think of it as an all-time great peak. I mean, Amari Stoudemire was not someone I considered as a finalist for this team. McAdoo's, I think, is a little better, and so it gets him into the, into the thought process for me. But his career, he goes to New York. Now, in fairness to McAdoo, there were drugs. There was, there was some white powder that was very popular back, back in those days, uh, especially in New York. Um, and so that was part of it. But 
I don't know if that style of play, even if that wasn't an issue, and sort of his approach would have necessarily lended itself to great sustained excellence the way he had in a split league during the ABA-NBA wars of the early 70s in Buffalo. That, that's my thinking. And so Lanier goes in and McAdoo goes out. Okay, so you you don't really think that McAdoo would be able to scale himself next to other high-end talent as much. Is that really a big part of it here? Um, I'm wondering on a more traditional team, because Buffalo just wasn't a great team, so they were trying stuff. I wonder if he could have had the same offensive impact at the four. If you play him at the five, he's already a defensive liability to a certain degree. We know that. So, yes, it is. some of it is kind of the way he played fitting next to other players, but also some of it is just the position and the style of what Buffalo was doing with him and how that would translate to other teams. Like I said, I actually think he has a good enough peak that I thought about including him on this list because of his peak, but I'm a little lower on that relative just to the raw numbers and him winning MVP when the ABA and NBA were split like that. So how, I know you brought Amari Stoudemire, but what if I throw in Dirk Nowitzki in this conversation, how Don Nelson used him in the early 2000s? Is that... I mean, are you saying Dirk should be on this list? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess, by the way, that, that Dirk is such a lock on this list, does that comparison help McAdoo's case for getting in more than a comparison to someone like Amari Stoudemire? I have a hard time seeing the stylistic similarity between Dirk and McAdoo. Um, I get it. I get what you're trying to say. It's the like on one superficial level, it's there because they're big men that can face and shoot and to some degree drive. But I think Dirk has a couple extra layers going on. One, I think he was probably much better at it, regardless Mm -hmm. of what position he was playing and who you were trying to guard him with. Because maybe with McAdoo, if you put the right power forward on him or something at the time, maybe I could go check, but sometimes you see something like, well, he plays Dave Cowens and the numbers aren't as good. Um, So maybe just compared to Dirk, like Dirk, you put a big on, he's too fast. He toasts him. He still has his post game. You put a small on, he just takes him to the elbow. And then the other thing with Dirk is the, the time he played in so much of his impact was spacing and taking a big and taking him out of the lane and putting him up top. And he was never a great passer, but you can use all of that spacing and him outside to help his other teammates. And I think the Braves were trying to do that, but I don't know how sustainable that was without a three point shot and with the kind of um, player distribution of the seventies. Why do you have Dirk in? You know, I think he might be looking in at this point. I really have to go back and look through the whole list again. Wait, no, I meant McAdoo. Do you have McAdoo in? Oh, oh, I have no idea. I didn't. I'm not even pretending like I went through this whole exercise here. I'm You're just, smart. You didn't. You didn't set yourself up for failure <laughs> and disappointment. I'm just here to, to jab at you. Remember, I'm, already, I'm in the side card. Well, no, it's fantastic that you're in the side card because you already see what I'm doing to myself. I had Hayes. I just feel tortured inside. I had Hayes. And now we switched it to unselled, and that feels better. But then, how do you leave? Hayes has so much longevity. Let's move on before I change my mind again. Um, <laughs> Moses Malone, Bill Walton, we know they're in. Robert Parrish, I think he's just got too much longevity. Underrated little peak in the early 80s. Really good defensive player for a really long time. And the, the thing with Parrish is he was never a great defensive player. He was never a great offensive player. And so people in their mind 
start to devalue that. They just don't think about it. And this is where I also get to the point of like, I just don't want a list of like the 87 most longevity based careers or something like that. It doesn't excite Parrish, people. Parrish is maybe the first name on this list where I would probably feel more comfortable swapping him out for another 80s player that did not make it. Ooh, I like it. I like it. But also he's underrated. So I'm, I'm going to keep Parrish. Two guys here that I think are worth discussing. 80s kind of, they have, they have their own reputations in the 80s, but staples of the 80s, Cody's the, the iconic 1980s, Alex English and Bernard King. Yes, and I, I think we talked about both of them a fair bit last time, both of them being very strong offensive players. Alex English being on a lot of those good Nuggets offenses for a while, had a pretty solid career. And it's going to be one of these two that I would want in over Parrish. I have no idea which one I would pick. It would pro- I'd probably lean English, probably. But I, 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 would, I would feel more comfortable with one of them being on the list. So with English, the argument is longevity, a smooth, consistent player, as we talked about last time. And with Bernard, it's this peak. And of course, Bernard is one of these players who ends up with a reputation, A, probably because he played in New York, but B, because he has this kind of very sharp ascension in 1983 through 1984 through the 84 playoffs through 85 and then poof, the knee and that's kind of the end of it and he has it comes back and he has a post career and he plays for the bullets and still scores 20 points a game and things like that but i mean we were witnessing some of the most insane scoring in nba history if you if you make up a list of the best scores or the best scoring seasons, periods, playoffs, things like that. He's going to be somewhere in that conversation. It was just transcendent. The question with Bernard is, you know, he was playing a more of a floor raising role in New York on not a very good team, somewhat like McAdoo. What do we make of his defensive chops? Wasn't a great passer. So how much offense did he create? I think to some degree you can equate Bernard and Adrian Dantley, although I like the way Bernard got into it. I think he has a little bit better catch and shoot, a little bit more flow to his game. And so his argument is peak. English's argument is longevity. I went back and forth on this, Cody, repeatedly, repeatedly. And I just, I'm just not convinced enough that King has that like MVP, what I classify as that weak MVP peak that I want to get in on my, on my peaks merits. And so I'm going to go Bernard out, English in? Yeah, I, I think that's probably the right decision. When you're talking about, like, I don't even remember the point totals exactly, but I feel like Alex English had some kind of records with the most 25-point games in a row or something like that. Or He was just in and out every year, pouring that in, and I really value that. And Bernard King, like you said, was on a great trajectory, but I really like the idea of being able to just in and out for a decade consistently producing at that level. How are we doing on time? How long have we been talking for it? Are we over an hour already? Are we combining last time and all the other side no, conversations? Just, just today. We're just, we're just, uh, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Kevin McHale, Isaiah Thomas, Clyde Drexler, John Stockton, Charles Barkley, Hakeem Olajuwon, Michael Jordan. They all came in in the first half of the 80s. Any problems there? You know, if Jordan never retired, Olajuwon probably went to one of those championships, so he's probably out choking. Olajuwon's clearly in. <laughs> Um, of that group of these classes, they're always paired together. They went head to head for me in my mind, James Worthy and Dominique Wilkins. 
I this goes this kind of goes back to the unselled thing, Cody, to a degree, because I don't think either of these guys has a peak to get in just on peak. And Wilkins has kind of more longevity. The problem with Worthy, who I like more as a player, I like more the idea of Worthy, and I like his peak. I like his skill set. I like what he's demonstrated, like the way he played on championship teams. And this is one of the few times you'll ever hear me reference the finals or this big game or that big game. But just by luck of playing in Los Angeles, we got to see Worthy in a lot of big games. And we know he was, he, he was called Big Game James for a reason. Like he was, and I just think that's because he was really good. I think he had more in the tank. And if you look at... You try to pick up statistical signals on things like, hey, well, when Magic Johnson was out, what, what did the team look like? They still look like a good offensive team, but Worthy was never a guy who took his scoring to like 25 or 30 points a game. But what he did do when Magic was out was he passed more, and he looked like a better passer. And so, especially doing greatest peaks and going back and watching those teams, he's a better defender than you think. He's a more versatile defender. He can protect the rim a little bit. He can guard wings. He took assignments that Magic couldn't take to cover for him. He's amazing in transition. He's one of the best post scorers, just pure post scoring game. I think probably ever. He's an underrated passer, plays off ball and on ball with that post game. I'm going worthy in. I think that's the right decision here. I really do. And, you know, I think something when people think about James Worthy, it's like he wouldn't have been able to score if he wasn't next to Magic that whole time. But when you go back and watch a lot of those games, you're right. A lot of those isolation scoring he did in that mid-post area was really pretty magical. I mean, tough shots he was making and really quick spins. And out on the break, he was so fast for someone being like 6'9 or 6'8 or whatever he was. He was really tremendously had the whole package. And I, I personally really like jackknife players like that. Uh, so I think that's the right decision. So you're saying you have Eddie Jones in? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm jumping also, ahead. I would also like them to be significantly better, but uh, sure, I like Eddie Jones plenty. Yeah. Okay, so for Dominique, for me, it was like, is Dom- does Dominique have enough extra longevity? Now I feel like with the Elvin Hayes thing, this gets really dicey. Uh, Dominique is a different kind of player than people realize. He's more of a finisher. He's more of a slash and crash that's the way I think of them. I don't even know. Is that a term? Did I just make that up? Slash and crash? I hope so. I mean, I hope it's not a term because I really like that. I hope I'm here for the, the genesis of that term. Well, please let me know in the response to this if that's a term. Because that's how Dominique Wilkins played. He was someone who wanted to take it to the rim. Obviously, he could take pull-up jumpers. But I don't think that was necessarily his strong suit. His efficiency was always kind of low because of that. But as a finisher and as someone who could get on the offensive glass with his athleticism, that's where he really shined. And what what jumps out to me is when Doc Rivers, Doc Rivers from 86 to 90, the Hawks were, they had this like Doc Rivers, Kevin Willis, they, the Tree Rollins was there. They had this squad that was fairly um, consistent from year to year and staying together and very successful. And Doc Rivers misses these two huge chunks of time. When Rivers is out, Cody, Dominique's numbers go down. The efficiency goes down and the volume goes down. And a great indicator for self-creation and kind of carrying extra load is free throws. And his free throw attempts go down. This is rare. 
What we usually see from guys who are huge high volume players and have the capacity to be an offensive engine is when you take someone else in that role, Rivers being the lead guard, when you take them off the floor, their numbers go up, their volume goes up, their free throws go up because they're trying more, their turnovers go up. Wilkins, everything goes down. And my theory for this is that he's, he's slash and crash. He's more of a finisher. He's more of a complimentary kind of guy. Oh, that's not the right word because he's such high volume. But he's not as on ball as we think of the 1988 Game 7 duel versus Bird or whatever. So I think my big question for him is how much did that athleticism and size translate on defense? Some of those Hawks teams were solid on defense, like... I'm going in with Dominique Wilkins. Dominique is so tough, and I think a term that that you could be using there is shiftability. He's able to shift up his his ability to not able to shift up his ability to score and create. Um, but yeah, it sounds like you're describing somebody that's a lot more akin to a Marty Stoudemire than say I don't know. I can't think of anyone else off the top of my head. But he's more Amari Stoudemire than say Michael Jordan, who he was going against a lot more. Do you know the like sort of documentary from the early '90s called Michael Jordan's Playground? I do. Why? Okay. So that was like maybe my introduction to the NBA is I found my my older brother's copy of that. And I think there's a segment in there when Jordan talks about that Dominique is like one of the players that was the toughest for him to go head to head because he always brought his game. So I always like I always equated Dominique as being like this tremendous score, this engine that you could just give the ball and run an offense through. And it wasn't until like much later on just because of how Michael Jordan talked about him. So I don't know. Between that, between the dunk contests which, you know, I probably rate a lot more highly than you. Dominique should probably be in. I don't rate the dunk contest, but I do find his athletic package and his motor and just his kind of overall role on some really good teams in Atlanta, I do find that to be compelling. And he's got good longevity, relatively speaking. Came into the league in 83, and it wasn't really until the early 90s-ish that he, you know, he had a good decade run there. So... Similar guys, um, I mentioned Clyde Drexler. Sorry, where were we? Patrick Ewing, Carl Malone. I think these guys are all locks for me. Reggie Miller, I've talked about ad nauseum. Scotty Pippen, David Robinson gets us to 1990. Now, I don't want to get stuck here on this guy, Cody, but before we were recording, we were already talking about him. I had two guys in this draft class. The first one is Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman... I've been splitting hairs over for weeks. I've been staying up at night. I actually dyed my hair different colors to see if that would influence me. Uh, I hope that's the only thing you did to get into character here. He doesn't have the peak I want to get in in that discussion. His sort of career value from the longevity standpoint for me gets him right into this area where we split hairs with all the other guys because... I do think he was a good defender earlier in his career, a great defender, obviously. And then as he became hyper-focused on offensive rebounding, became a fairly valuable offensive piece as someone who can play next to other scorers and whatnot, like Pippins and Jordans of the world. Here's my thing with Rodman. I feel like he's getting cultural credit for playing on the 90s Bulls, for having the dyed hair, for being such an expressive personality out there the kind of thing that you and i love watching night in and night out randomly hitting three threes in a row at the end of a game and i think that was 1997 
Um, three or four threes in a row he drained at the end of a Bulls game one night in the regular season. That this stuff is awesome. But he also was someone who got suspended a lot, um, took the right kind of personalities to handle. They talk about that a lot in Last Dance. He absolutely imploded in San Antonio. And that's a personality thing again, but I don't think it's a good sign when you go play with David Robinson and then you implode. Yeah, we like refused to help double team Hakeem Olajuwon in the post or something like it that. Not, I remember that. Yeah, it was not good stuff that was happening. And so my point here is I think I think when Rodman is on the edge, it's nice to be able to say, hey, Ben, put arguably the greatest rebounder on your team. You'll have that box checked. Put this super unique player, just like we've got Wes Unseld and Nate Thurman. We've got these kind of different angles and representations of the sport as we trace through its history. But... I feel like that is somewhat arbitrary to a degree where I'm wondering why we're not concerned about the negatives with Dennis. And and again, it pains me to say this because I want to have Dennis on my team, but I'm like, can you tell the story of the bad boys Pistons without Dennis Rodman? You probably can. I mean, great defenders. So obviously helping what drove their success. And then the Bulls, how much of that is just luck of playing with Phil Jackson and Jordan and Pippen at that point in time, especially given what happened to him in San Antonio? It was very close to going off the rails for Dennis. Very close to going off the rails. And I think that's the thing that concerns me to some degree, where I feel like he's getting credit for all that stuff. And I'm like, should it go the other way? I I don't know. And you know, when you give him credit for that, that Bulls three-peat, when you look at the first three-peat, they had Horace Grant played that role, and while he didn't have the rebounding numbers, he was still an extremely flexible uh, defensive player that was able to fill a lot of those gaps that Rodman was able to do later on. So maybe it was the fact that he was just able to fall into the right situation. Uh, how much stock do you put in the Benjamin Morris piece, the case for Dennis Rodman, where he, he lays out the case for Rodman being the best player? Well, the the best third best player ever by such a wide margin that his value skyrockets beyond pretty much any other player in history. I don't put too much stock in it. Yeah. Okay. I thought I'd bring it up anyway. I think we've talked about this once upon a time, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was very happy to see a case like that being made for Dennis. I think a more holistic evaluation. The thing that I loved that he really got is the offensive impact because I think, when he switched to offensive rebounding, he became a very unique ceiling raiser as an offensive player. So go back to what I said about Dominique Wilkins when another guy leaves the lineup. Rodman has one of the weirdest footprints on his teammates ever because when he leaves the lineups, when he leaves the lineup, all of their volume, all of their offensive loads go down. And the reason for this is because he picks up so many second chances on offensive rebounds that he juices everyone's volume stats, essentially, because they get more bites at the apple on what we consider one possession. So is is Rodman in for you? I actually forget where we started with this. Based on all of that, does Rodman make the list? I'm going to go Rodman out right now. Oh, wow. Yeah. If there's someone, oh, wow. make a little mental note if there's someone we can come back to, because like I said, the it's like that whole thing with Unseld. Like the idea of Rodman on the team seems more fun. I don't know. This is why this is an impossible task. Can why? I directly compare him to someone else we talked about already? Yeah, please. Robert Parrish. Why Robert Parrish over Dennis Rodman? Well, I think you can argue Robert Parrish had a better peak. And then I think you can argue that 
both of them as all-star type players, uh, Parrish had better longevity. I think that's a fairly easy argument to make. And okay. so, and so that's the thing. It's like you would have to pick Rodman almost in a sense because he's unique, or you can put him in an idealized situation. And you know, if you're building the late '90s Bulls, would you rather have Rodman or peak Robert Parrish? I think you'd probably rather have Rodman, but is that the sole determiner for placement on the team? Not for me, but I mean, you see, you see how it kind of gets dicey. Yeah, so Dennis seems more scalable, perhaps, in those kinds of situations. I think so. Parrish is going to fit in, I guess, not those kinds of situations. I think so. Dennis is really tough for me, because I think there's really strong arguments to include him, and I think there's strong arguments to exclude him. I think these these like high-volatility players, um, yeah, it's a lot nicer to have a guy who you're just like, man, as a teammate, a player, a member of this franchise, whatever, he's just solid he's just a machine in terms of fitting and providing value both on court but then of course these things can bubble up because if your personality grades with someone off court then you can have problems there as well here's a name that no one talks about cody i know i know you're excited to get to this name i'm very excited i've heard him called proto nash i like to think of him as nash light from the cleveland cavaliers mark price was an absurdly good offensive player. And this goes back a little bit to miscasting things and archetypes and, you know, having kind of a plain name like Mark Price and, you know, short little floppy white fellow running around out there, that kind of thing. And he played on a team that was a balanced team. You know, they had Brad Doherty and they had Larry Nance and they had a lot of good players. But both in terms of what I would consider... Uh, a more modern box score look at things. So my box score model, um, some of the work I've done on passing and playmaking, and in terms of looking at the impact this guy had in Cleveland when he missed all that time with all of his injuries, and then when he played. Again, this is not Steve Nash, but this is like an early 90s version of Steve Nash. This is an extraordinarily good outside shooter. He wasn't quite as good on ball, picking teams apart and playmaking, but he was a good passer, kind of a good move. Like he could come off curls or catch and shoot more than you would think. And when he played in that system, the numbers are enormous. So they go from things like 1989 to 1992, when Price is out and Hot Rod Williams is in the lineup, and a bunch of other, you know, they got Brad Doherty, Larry Nance, I mentioned these guys. They go from a 36-win pace up to a 55-win pace, and all of that comes from offense. That's a 60-game sample because of all the time Price missed. Um, If you look at it from 1989 to 1992, and you include Brad Doherty, they played 43 games without him. They were a 40-win team without him. They were a 59-win team with him. Again, all on offense. So Price to me is a guy who just on peak, just on those handful of years, probably needs to be considered here. And I think even the comparison with Nash, a couple of ways that he differs is he seems to be a lot more portable than him. Like you could fit him in a lot more other team squads because it wasn't like Mark Price ball. The Cavaliers didn't roll the ball out and be like, oh, all right, Price, let's run some high pick and rolls and then you create for everyone. He did a lot of secondary attacks. He definitely had some of his own uh, one-on-one creation, but it wasn't 
necessarily how the Cavaliers were going to run their offense. And I also think athletically, he was much quicker than Nash, like splitting some double teams. He could just have these really quick bursts. It's just he was so short that he couldn't burst so well at the rim. And I don't know what his finishing numbers were because I don't think we have a lot of those from the early 90s. But uh, with his quickness and his ability to get two feet in the paint, he was really a the type of player you would want on a well-rounded squad like that because he could fit in with pretty much any kind of a team build that didn't have a point guard already. Yeah, I think you nailed it. He uh, he was about a 22-point per 75 score plus 7% relative to league efficiency in 1992-1993. And Brad Doherty missed 19 games during that time. That went up to... 25 and plus 9%. So you see these kind of indicators of just someone who's a really, really skilled offensive player, not the playmaker that Nash quite was. And I think that prevents him from just, oh, you absolutely have to put him on the list. But he was in the conversation for me and I think was one of the guys I was considering for one of those final spots, but I just wasn't convinced it was enough. It's really close. How much did missing time factor into that? Because when you just look at his career, he didn't have great longevity, it seemed like. Yeah, I mean, I think for the peak guys, I want to make sure, like, Walton makes it on basically two years. Uh, of course, the thing with Walton is his peak is so good, even if you adjust down or give her a, give a wider range of uncertainty, I mean, it's, it's bizarre to think that, like, Bill Walton doesn't have one of the 50 best peaks in league history. With a guy like Price... Any kind of uncertainty just completely gets him out of the conversation, and you almost have to give him the benefit of the doubt to really see him as like, oh, was could it could it have been in 1992 that a healthy Mark Price was the sixth best player in basketball? Uh, I don't know. I, I do think it's worth bringing up and, and talking about, which is why we did it. But he was a final cut for me. And I think, unfortunately, going back to Michael Jordan's playground, apparently a really important document in my life. But you see you get into the NBA and you see like the shot over Elo and, you know, they bring in Gerald Wilkins, the Jordan stopper and Jordan makes mincemeat of him. So you kind of just think of the Cavaliers as a joke. But when you go back, that Cavaliers team was really, really like not even just kind of good. They were really good. And I think Mark Price kind of gets uh, falls into that category of just like a point guard on a team that Jordan eviscerated year in and year out. It's weird how, and I guess because they made the 96 finals, but like the Sonics and the Cavs had these similarities in terms of really, really good regular season teams and then kind of these epic failures. But guys like Mark Price and even to some degree Brad Doherty, who had a nice little peak of his own, Larry Nance was a really awesome player as well. They get discarded because of a, a playoff hiccup or two and then Gary Payton I feel like like I said maybe it was that 96 finals run but he he's always been good and maybe even Sean Kemp I know Cody you're a big Sean Kemp guy I I am a big Sean Kemp guy just just once again the vibes of the dunks and you know the dunk on Gatling and the point to get whoever that was that he he posterized like that was all just really cool and I mean if we're talking about that finals run they had he was maybe the best player on that team. Like, I think he had more impact on the team than Peyton, especially at that point. I don't think Peyton had blossomed fully into what he really became. But he was he was really a tremendous player for at least a small period of time. Next name on my list is Gary Peyton. Mm -hmm. I did not deliberate too much over him. Um, Shaquille O'Neal, Jason Kidd. Now, there are a lot of guys from the early 90s here that we have to talk about. How much time do we have left? 
oh, we're over? Okay, we'll just keep going. Yep. I was going to say, you said an hour and a half, and we are over that and in the mid-90s. No. I saw this coming. No, I refuse. We had some <laughs> We had some talking before we started the show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Dikembe Mutombo. He's just one of the best defensive players ever, and he did it for like a decade straight. And it goes back to having massive defensive value. Now, this is the 90s, not the 70s. But it's a similar thing. All of the plus-minus footprints that we have, whether it's the game level, play-by-play level, adjusted plus-minus, whatever. Or you just look at his team's defensive ratings when he goes in Denver, leaves Denver, goes to Atlanta, leaves Denver, goes to Philadelphia. To me, this is like a decade straight of all-star play. Maybe with a peak you could even talk about as being around an all-NBA level. And that's just enough on longevity for me. And again... Like, it feels comfortable going, oh, yeah, this is one of the best defenders ever, and he did it for a long time. Kind of the Nate Thurman thing. Um, I'm going in on Dikembe Mutombo. I think that's the right choice. And honestly, I'm really, really shocked that he didn't make the NBA 75 list. I thought he was someone that had a lot of clout among NBA circles. Uh, he was part of the really famous 8-1 upset against the the Sonics, I think. I don't know what year that was. It was 94. Or, yep. It was 94. So, you know, there's the iconic shot of him laying on the ground, like holding the basketball really tightly. I don't know. I, I I think it's a pretty open and shut case. I don't know if he's a lock, but he's he's right below that for me. Just he played until he was like 42. And like you said, just a decade of all star level play and tremendous defensive player. I, I don't know what else you can say about him. He's the first guy, I think, who's international that I have in that the league didn't have on the official 75 team. Is that right? think so yeah i believe so i bring that up to say i did think the lack of international players that that's a big disagreement i have with the league i thought it was kind of uh too domestic centric probably perhaps from the voting pool but also this is gets back to this thing of when you fix the old 50 in place you limit the amount of guys you can have from the last 30 years go in as new players and therefore you limit potentially some of the international guys and Matumbo is a perfect example he came in the league in 92 there's no way he's vote being voted in in 96 but by the end of his career like yeah i i did not agonize too much over him he's in I'm glad you said the point about international players. I literally wrote international players had it rough about the list. And I think there's a few players after this that I really raised my eye at. And I'm like, really? That player? I don't know. There's a couple that I strongly disagree with coming up here. But so, Matumbo starts it. Well, Matumbo starts it. But what's also weird for me is we mentioned David Robinson. We mentioned Shaquille O'Neal. We mentioned Patrick Ewing. This is considered the era, the golden era of centers and big men. And not only did Dikembe Mutombo not make the list, but Alonzo Mourning didn't make the list. And Alonzo Mourning, to me, not only does he have a similar kind of, um, you know, doesn't quite have the longevity of Dikembe because of the kidney thing that kind of stopped him around year 2000. But, man, he was a very, very good defender. And his impact numbers, the plus minus numbers, these kinds of indicators, when he was healthy, like Miami was fantastic. When he was not healthy, they were not a contender. He was top two, top three MVP at his peak, 1999, 2000. You could argue with the jump shot and the hook shot and the power game back then that he was a fairly decent offensive player paired with that big defensive impact. Now, he couldn't pass. (laughs) You couldn't really run a great offense through him. But... I still think this is a guy, that peak that he had, some of those numbers, some of the impact indicators for him are enormous. 
I just too much to consider. And you add in the fact that there's this like golden era of centers in the nineties that seems to not be represented, which is a little bizarre to me. So I go in on morning as well. Matumbo and morning. I go in on both of them. And I know this is definitely not something that you, uh, really look at too much but when i started really sorting them i started looking at number of all-star appearances number of all nba appearances and trying to split them up between first second and third and morning was only on two all nba teams but he was also a top five finisher for mvp voting twice which is not something a lot of other players that sort of just missed the cut had like you're absolutely right this is a player that really had a high pick a peak i think i made a mistake last podcast and said he made the finals um as like the top player in the late 90s um, I think you meant the conference finals. Yeah, I did. Yeah, they lost I, to the I Bulls. Misp- I, I misspoke last time, but you know, really strong player that went surrounded by other talent that could create for other players, like you said, uh, between his defense and some of his rebounding and his scoring numbers. I, I agree with you. I, I, I might have Matumbo higher, but I think Morning should also be in. Okay, so we talked about Bob McAdoo. We talked about Bernard King. We've talked about some of these high peak players. We're, we're only like two hours into the podcast. I think it's a good time to get to some of my favorite high peak players ever. We skipped over a guy I agonized about, but didn't really get all the way down to the splitting hair stage. And that's Marcus Johnson with the box. Cody, I'm surprised you didn't you didn't bring up Marcus Johnson. No, I didn't. I'm also surprised I didn't bring up Sidney Moncrief, who I was really on top of last time. So I'm trying to hold myself back. OK, so I bring this up to say. There are two more guys in the 90s that stand out to me as these sort of ultimate, like, flash in the pan is not the right word, because for three, four, five, six years, they were legit superstars, just phenomenal basketball players. And those two guys, to me, I love talking about them. We're going to have to rein it in so this doesn't go five hours. Uh, Anthony Penny Hardaway and Grant Hill. Mm Mm-hmm. Who do you want to start with on this one? Let's start with Hill. I think he's easier. Uh, phenomenal peak. Obviously, the ankle kind of kills his longevity. Although, again, Cody, going back to what I said, a guy who reinvented himself after the ankle injury and still found a way to contribute on other levels. Those things, I do think, are positive indicators when you're looking at a list like this. Hill at his peak was I've heard him called mini LeBron, pre-LeBron, just an athletic force. His first step, his ability to get to the basket, downhill speed with long strides, extreme shin angle, that's for Dave Dufour, and um, just finishing at the rim, a good passer, good playmaker. You could almost play like a heliocentric system with him. Strong indicators across the board. Like I don't think there's any doubt he was a superstar player and one of the better players in the world when he was healthy. First of all, I don't know. You give a shout-out for Dave. He, he said last time he doesn't listen to these kinds of things because he's it's so true. focused He's on, not even going to hear that. It's just other people. No, so ig- ignore the Dave talk. He's not, he's not getting talked about anymore. Um, but yeah, Hill is Hill's, Hill's really interesting because like you said, I really like the proto-LeBron thing because his ability to get into the paint to just drive with such ferocity and get to the basket and score. His pull-up mid-range game, he wasn't like a mid-range sniper, but he could at least pull it out once in a while. He was really good at kickout passes, especially to the corner. I mean, this is a guy, like you said, that if he had been nowadays, uh, people would have been talking about him definitely in an MVP kind of conversation because of his offensive impact. I don't know because of 
I don't know if I saw enough of him that I could see him fitting that well against other offensive superstars at that point. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that or how you uh, how you feel about that helps or hurts his candidacy. But that's the one thing that I was kind of iffy about with his uh, ability is I don't know if you could put him next to somebody else and have him thrive as well as he did alone. Yeah, there is a little bit of a a, a fit heliocentric thing there. But again, it goes back to what I said about him uh, adapting in Phoenix, um, you know, playing on some of those teams at Duke. He played four years at Duke. He just seems to have a really good mind. And and when he was healthy, man, his body, his athleticism. Um, He did finish third in MVP voting in 1997. So I don't want to make it sound like he wasn't Mm -hmm. considered a superstar. He was a superstar and an MVP candidate. And I think the bigger questions for him, just in terms of how great that peak was, are things like defense uh, and and how he would fit alongside other guys. He did have Joe Dumars, who had some good seasons with him. Joe Dumars himself, obviously, a nice complimentary piece. So it is an interesting question. But I think when you're that good, I, I do think, like, I struggled with this with Marcus Johnson, who we don't have to get into in detail. But it's it's a thing where just how good are you based on these other factors if you're a guy who can tear up defenses, score, and play make, and you're a big giant body, so you can't be that big of a negative on defense, and it's possible, like, I mean, maybe he was a positive as well, but all of his indicators are there, so I'm going in with Grant Hill. Okay, yeah, and I'm glad you brought up defense, because I, I kind of more intensely scouted him maybe a year and a half ago or so, and the defense was definitely something that did not stand out to me too much like when you talk about proto lebron that's one area where he does not match up to lebron in any sense of the word just he didn't seem to really have that much energy didn't have a high motor on the defensive end once in a while made like an athletic steal or something like that but he wasn't locking people down he wasn't protecting the rim with any sort of uh you know consistency so i definitely agree with that so we know this is um off the rails podcast already since we're gonna of course we're trying to get under two hours that's always a great sign I think three hours. I think we. <laughs> hey, we we only got like twenty years left. We're doing good. We're like fifty <laughs> years in. I I think it's time for the hot takes. Oh. Anthony Hardaway is one of the twenty best offensive players ever. Oh wow! Are we talking peak? Peak. Oh wow! I'm just gonna move on from there because I know I'll, I'll make I'll make some of the case. I mean, you have, you have to say something after. Okay, that. fine. Well, there's a big video on him coming at some point in time. Oh, absolutely. Um. He's an absolutely unbelievable offensive player. In, I think it was the 96 playoffs against the Bulls, the Bulls like ran through the magic. I believe it was a four-game sweep off the top of my head. Yeah, it was. And Penny in that series was the guy for Orlando, not Shaq. Penny was the guy who was like, holy, holy crap. Penny is cooking Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. Like, how good is this guy his feel his instinct his passing his shooting uh shooting at three levels he had a post game he was big enough to finish he was explosive let me throw some of my favorite numbers out there for penny uh played 28 games in 1996 without shaquille o'neal in those 27 in those 28 games averaged 27 points per 75 on plus 10 percent true shooting wow hello magic played at a 50 win pace they were a plus four offense um he has other indicators like this as well when Shaq goes in and out of the lineup, his three-year postseason peak, 27 points plus 3%. Uh, very good playmaker. Big big passing kind of numbers in my system. Uh, 
also has incredible plus minus numbers has the 13th best augmented plus minus peak I have on record going back to 1994. He's got a monster plus minus uh, footprint in the playoffs, which misses his 1996 and only goes from 1997 through 1999. Like, I just think he's the most under-discussed offensive player probably in NBA history. I think something that really stands out when you watch him too is his just the fluidity of his handle. Like when you see somebody that big being able to move around the court that smoothly, it was really shocking. Like he would just dance around players. And even if a player was able to get a contest on him, he was so tall that it it didn't really even matter. Like he wasn't necessarily a knockdown shooter, but he's definitely the kind of player that even with a hand in his face, it it didn't really seem like it bothered him all that much. So yeah, a, a lot of those indicators of a very strong offensive player. He was compared to Magic. I think it was a decent comparison in the sense that they both had incredible feel for team offense. Magic was a better passer. He was better at driving that value through volume passing, and Penny was a little bit more of a scorer. But just both guys who were almost savants, um, it, and I don't want to use that word maybe necessarily too too loosely, but we're talking about guys that are like six, seven, six, eight doing the stuff that they're doing. Yeah. I like it. I think you've teased the Anthony Penny Hardaway video well enough here. I think people will be clamoring for it. Well, I think in many ways it's weird because, um, you know, other guys in this time period, we know Jason Kidd, he's in Kevin Garnett is in Kobe Bryant's in Steve Nash is in Ray Allen's in. And then there's the first pick in that draft class, Allen Iverson. I'm silent because I want you to say the first words about Iverson. Well, I, I think when everything we just said about Penny Hardaway, I feel like people apply this transcendence to Iverson because we know he's a cultural figure. We know for most people, myself included, he had tremendous aesthetic and just like massively engaging and entertaining player to watch on and off the court. But... Penny Hardaway to me is like a significantly better offensive player than Iverson. And Iverson's a good offensive player. That's the thing. So maybe I shouldn't overstate it. But like Penny's on a level that Iverson is not on offensively to me. I think a big part of that too is that Penny could just fit in with other offensive stars better than I think Iverson would be able to. Do you think a lot of that value is derived from that? Or even as like a head guy alone, he was significantly better than Iverson? Oh, I think as a head guy alone, he was significantly better. His offenses were really good when he was more the head guy. Now, now, now he tended to play like Philadelphia had these crazy defensive first lineups. Um, and Penny would at least have a, a shooter. out. You know, Dennis Scott or Nick Anderson were typically out there on those teams, things like that. But I, th- I think Iverson in some way, and we could, again, have a whole podcast about Iverson, so I don't want to belabor it. I think him fitting in with other guys is less of an issue per se than just like, what's his defensive value? And the one I always go back to with Iverson is how good of a shooter is he? Because we have this thing called the Iverson cut that that Philadelphia popularized. And Iverson moving to off ball. Larry Brown moved him off ball because his decision making on ball and running an offense through Iverson as a as a high volume playmaker and engine like that wasn't working. Okay. And it was a big thing that unlocked Iverson. I loved the move when Larry Brown did it. And so all of this stuff where you can get catch and shoot from AI, you can get this movement. Um 
how good of a shooter was he on knocking these down? Like he was he was near the bottom third of the league in outside shooting indicators quite a lot. And so if you're really, really small and you can't shoot that well, I don't ever know how you're supposed to apply like high level championship offense pressure in that role. So it's it, with Iverson, I guess what I'm saying is I think his role as a second guy is actually slightly uh, underrated. Like when he went to Denver, he was actually okay playing with Carmelo Anthony. I think he can modulate his volume down a little bit, right? I just think it's the question of, are you going to look like James Worthy playing on a championship level offense? That's the harder one for me. Can I ask you a question that's maybe my counterfa- favorite counterfactual in NBA history? Yeah. How do you think we view Iverson collectively if Vince Carter hits the game-winning shot in the semifinals back in 2001 and Iverson doesn't make the conference finals then? Or even the finals, I guess. Wow. I immediately see why that's your favorite counterfactual. Because, because well, on one the hand... The then make the finals then? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you could even talk about Ray Allen in that series. Like, they had this crazy shootout game, which was fun as all hell, but, I mean... Didn't the Bucks not only won that game, but didn't Ray Allen kind of have the better numbers in the shootout? Remember the game I'm talking about? Yeah, I think so. They they both like swapped fifty point games or so. I don't remember exactly what it was, but they it had was a, nuts. It was the second half was nuts. That was one of my most fun games of the early two thousands because both of these guys were on fire. And I want to say off the top of my head, they each went over twenty five. Um, one of them might have gone over 30 in the second half. And Cody, that was back in the day when you won a basketball game by scoring 76 points. Yeah, so again, those are two very big opportunities where Iverson could have lost before making it to the finals. And that, that Carter shot, Iverson doesn't even get to the conference finals in that situation. What do we what do we think about him? Because I really feel like so much, I mean, obviously there's the cultural impact, but a huge part of that impact is being able to steal a game from the Lakers in 2001 to this unbeatable Lakers juggernaut. What happens if none of that happens for him? I, I also think it's kind of silly that winning one game has, and then the, the step over Ty Lue. Like, it's, it's perfect in the sense that it's part of the iconic nature of Allen Iverson, the player, and how influential he was as a player. But when we talk about it from an impact perspective, an on-court perspective, that Philadelphia team wasn't even that good. It was just a really weak Eastern Conference, and they snuck by the skin of their teeth in two series before getting to the Lakers, and they they didn't have a lot of success a- afterwards. So the the challenging part of the counterfactual to me is, would he lose that cultural presence that he has? The success of guys like Earl Monroe, Pistol Pete, um, guys like that, even even like. Jason Williams, skip to my Lou. They're still there. It makes me think Iverson would still have a 95% of his presence. Um, but I, I, you know, I have the number of people I've seen rank him in like the top 30 or 25 players of all time. It, to your point, if, if they lose in the second round in that series, I, I don't know. I don't know how that goes. I don't know how he holds up in the, in the sort of popular limelight. So Ben, the moment of truth is Iverson on your team. I've gone back and forth on this many times. I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go Iverson in. Okay. You just spent a long time making me think you were going to swap out from that. What What do you think makes him somebody that makes the team over some 
someone else we might be talking about coming up. Well, I alluded to it. I, I, I think his role as a second guy or paired with someone else or something like that, I think it gets understated a little bit. And some people got very mad at me recently for making this Tony Parker comparison, but there aren't a lot of players in NBA history that play like these guys. And Iverson and Tony Parker are two of these players that are just lightning fast basketball players who can apply pressure at the rim, have some ability to score in kind of like the mid range, aren't great outside shooters, don't really do a lot of stuff off the ball though. Again, I give AI way more credit there and then aren't really positive defenders. And so I think about if his career looked like that, where he was next to a dominant big man or something, and they were a moderately good offensive team that needed someone to play. The other thing about Iverson is he's going to war every night. He's playing 45 minutes a night. He's putting his body out there. He can pass and play make. I'm, I'm nervous about the playmaking situation because it was the same problem they ran into in Philadelphia. He's really, really tiny, but you kind of need him to be the quote-unquote shooting guard. So your argument is actually that he was miscast as that primary engine on a bunch of teams, and that's where people feel like he has so much more value, but he actually should have been in a different role and would have actually been more impactful had he been in a different role for most of his career. I'm not sure miscast is even the right word. I just think people harp on the team he played on and the way he played and the efficiency he generated and it and it creates the polarization because one group says he averaged 30, therefore he's a god. And the other group says he didn't even have league average efficiency, therefore he's a bum. And to me, the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle because he's a flawed but um, sort of dynamic and complicated offensive player that has a lot of strengths and some weaknesses. And like I said, I'm almost more concerned about his defense being a negative. And he's got decent longevity. I don't buy his peak as like a super high peak guy. But I think he played long enough. I, th- I think I'm going to go in. Okay. Okay. I, I think f- that's probably the right decision. Okay. I was going to say, do you feel after all that I should, I should leave him off? No, because I, from your perspective, it's tough to say. But from my perspective, I do. Uh, I think I'm caring more about things that are outside of actual in-game impact more. And I think Iverson, just as a figure, gets in for me because he's part of my telling the story of the entire NBA. So that's why he would make it for me. Now, if we look at the next two draft classes... Uh, Tim Duncan's a lock. Dirk Nowitzki's a lock. Paul Pierce is pretty easy for me, just consistent, all-NBA, all-star-ish for like a good decade. Um, Then there are the cousins, Tracy McGrady and Vince Carter. Both of whom I think I cut last time. You you, You did, I think. And the voters for the 75th anniversary team cut both of these players. Let me start with McGrady, because I don't think it's a long conversation. I'm very comfortable with him going in based on his peak, and I think his longevity is underrated. I think what he did, like like Iverson, this negative kind of efficiency profile throws certain people off. Unlike Iverson, who gets the 0-1 finals boost, McGrady is constantly criticized for not moving forward in the playoffs. But his numbers actually get better in the playoffs. His scoring improves in the playoffs. He played on plenty good teams in Houston when they were healthy. Like, I just think it's one of those things where they had three or four bites at the apple and they ran into like the Mavs and the Jazz and they lost seven game series. And in Orlando, he didn't play with plenty good players. And like, 
there's your career. There's your 10 yeah, years. When your best teammate is like Pat Garrity or something like that going into the playoffs, it's it's not going to be a good time. But I think I agree with that. When you look at the seven All-NBA teams he made, that's a that's a high number. Like once you start talking about players making All-NBA teams, that's showing me as somebody that's had a career that was respected for a solid period of time. So it's, it's shocking to me that people do view him as kind of this flash in a pan. Yes, he was derailed a bit by injuries and he missed a lot of time in a few seasons, but it's not like he played like three seasons. That was it. Like he was productive for a good chunk of the, the, the 2000s. I feel like I've angered everyone before we even got to the 21st century. So mission accomplished. Hopefully we can correct some of the things that other people are angry about uh, regarding the 21st century. No. I, I think Vince Carter has an underrated peak at the beginning of the 21st century. And I think that combined with, you know, I, now the thing with Carter is just whether you, you think you misidentify his value throughout his career, like what happened at the end of Toronto and the, the, the kind of ugly divorce that they had there in his last season and then going to New Jersey and, you know, was New Jersey had like Jason Kidd and Vince Carter and Richard Jefferson and shouldn't they have been better I think that's the argument against him. I think, frankly, that's just what's left in people's heads. But the way I see it, and I got to, you know, you got to dial up some of the old games to get back there. His peak in the early 2000s was really good. And he was still a good player for like seven, eight, nine, ten years. And then even as kind of like a sub all-star role player, had a a number of years after that. He's kind of like guard Robert Parrish. Oh, guard Robert Parrish. I like that. Although I feel like I feel like his peak would have been just a little bit higher than Parrish's peak, yep, right? I agree, but Parrish also has this like kind of clear like peak. He actually finishes really high in MVP voting in one of the years in the early 80s and then kind of falls off and becomes more of an all-starry kind of player. So I, I yeah, I think he's guard Robert Parrish. So how do you feel and I don't want to screw something up here, but I'm pretty sure in Carter's entire Nets tenure and this is paired up with someone like Jason Kidd, I don't know if they had an above-average offensive rating that entire time. How, how do you square that issue? That's what I mean. That's uncomfortable. Um, yeah. Well, I think, I think the easiest way to square it is to say Kidd gets more value from his incredible defense than his offense. And Richard Jefferson was also a good player, but maybe a better defender. And so even though it feels like the Ned Kristich New, New Jersey Nets with like Kidd, Jefferson, Carter, Kristich, even though it feels like they should be soft on defense and really good on offense, maybe they didn't actually have that much offensive talent. I, I mean, I don't know. That was what I was alluding to as something that I think is actually difficult to square. And the fact you might not care about this as much, but I don't think he had a single top five MVP finish ever at any point in his career. And maybe that was, I don't know. I was going to say maybe that was wrong in 2001, but he's still competing with guys like Duncan and Shaq and KG. So is it just that he happened to be at the same time as these titans of impact at that period? Well, no. I think when we talk about a high peak and we say like a transcendent peak, we're not even having conversations about the Bill Waltons of the world. I think his high peak in the sense would be the kind of thing that's like top 10, but no, you're not going to pass prime Shaq, duncan kg kobe like mcgrady was in that conversation that's why i think mcgrady is an easier in so i'm gonna go mcgrady in and i'm gonna go carter i'm putting both the cousins in you're putting them both in yeah but for different reasons can i ask a comparison between two players yeah 
I don't know why I wait for you to say yeah. I know you're going to say yeah. You're not going to be like no. We're we're done. We're past two hours, so no more questions. Um, how do you compare McGrady's peak on offense versus Penny's peak on offense? I think Penny's was better. What specifically do you think it was the passing ability, the efficiency, the what about it? Yeah, I definitely the efficiency, but coming from just probably being better with feel about shot selection um, to a degree, diversity of ta- attack like McGrady probably settled for a few too many 14 to 21 footers, especially off the cross or getting into his little step back that he loved. And again, it's one of those things where you can make the shot and it's gorgeous and it looks great on highlights. But when you make it 38% of the time and some other guy takes it like rarely and makes it 45% of the time or something, that's the big difference. Penny's trying to get to the bucket, get to the foul line or create and pass. McGrady himself, I think one of the reasons he has such a high offensive peak is because he offsets some of those efficiency problems with being a fantastic passer from his position. He was a really, really good passer and playmaker. So they're, they're slightly different offensive players to me, but I think Penny, like I said, Penny is one of the greatest offensive players ever. Like he, he's kind of a prodigy on that end. Okay. And McGrady was probably looking on the outside into that sort of list. Yeah, I think so. I think that's the way to describe it. Man, this okay. has really become some Penny propaganda. We should, we should roll some Chris Rock commercials. Uh, <laughs> were you around for those? No, I was not. This is like the Grant Hill commercial reference last time that went over my head. Yeah. Wow. People don't know Little Penny. See, that's Wait, a, tra- that's a tragedy. You say that out loud, and I'm like, am I just making up the fact that that sounds familiar? Or yeah, I probably don't know. What you're I gave you about. the Mandela effect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Who who's still I, listening at this point? Have we lost everyone? We're, I don't know if I'm listening at this point. Ben Wallace, can we briefly just mention him? You think he should be in? I love Ben Wallace. I was okay, Matumbo was in pretty easily for us, right? It's the same thing. Ben Wallace yeah. Ben Wallace is Matumbo without the longevity. How, how do you, like to me Matumbo's longevity makes it easy to put in from instead with Wallace, he's in that group of guys I'm splitting hairs over where he could be like the 92nd best career or the 68th best career. I, I just don't think he has enough on that based on trying to get in the top peaks and primes. Wait, so is Wallace in for you? He, he's out. Oh, Wallace is out for you. He's out. Yeah. Okay. Just, I guess when you compare him directly to Matumbo, Matumbo did have a much longer longevity. How do you see their peaks though? Do you think Matumbo was better than Wallace at his peak or do you think Wallace had a better peak? I think Permanent impact when they played, Matumbo was a little higher. Yep. Oh, on defense or just because just defense, on offense yeah. he was maybe more 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 efficient at, at closer range. No, I think it's just I think it's just defense. Okay. Okay. That that kind of hurts me, but I know I, it hurts. We have to make cuts at some point. We do. This is a painful process. The whole point of this podcast is to get everyone upset, <laughs> more, including me. me more more so than anyone. Um. Pau Gasol, he's into. He me. didn't make. He didn't make the seventy-five list. This is this is a kind of absurd. Like I don't want to say he's a top forty slam dunk kind of guy, but he, this is like an all NBA level player for like what five years, six years. He made four of them officially. Uh, he was really good early in his career in Memphis, two thousand four, two thousand five, and he was really good for like eight years, and then decent in San Antonio and Chicago. And I, I just I, I don't entirely get. Well, this is, I think, the problem with keeping all the old guys, the Billy Cunninghams and Jerry Lucases of the world. He's into me. He, 
he was he was an extraordinary second banana on a couple of championship teams like great fit great yeah fit. yeah i this just baffled me i, I don't know how else to say the, these next couple of ones are just when we talk about the international players just getting the short end of the stick here i think this is the war the, the toughest section of those players okay more international players we're two hours in we only have a few names left we, we've in a way saved the best for last it is the teammates we talked about last time tony parker who's from the country of france and manu ginobili who um, is Italian but grew up in Ar- Argentina. These two fellows were good at basketball. Did they just split the votes? Did the voters be like, did half of them pick one and the other half pick this? I don't know how neither of them made it. It's a little like, weird to have the team that won like four championships and 60 games every year forever have one guy on the list. But the, but the 70s Knicks have six guys. Yeah, I was just about to say that, not to bring this back to our to our Knicks podcast here, but so many of them made it, and they're like, oh, look at how valuable they were. They fit so well on here, and that's that's exactly what like Parker was. like In the Spurs system, he's not a guy that you just throw the ball to and be like, all right, go create a heliocentric model, and Manu Ginobili was told to come off the bench, and he happily did that, and came off the bench and had like all NBA offensive impact. I, I, I can't. I don't know. I can't. I'm not even the most angry about these two. The one I'm most angry about is still coming up. So I'm ramping up right now. I'm ramping up two hours and ten minutes in. Oh, wow. Okay. So Manu Ginobili, it's a little like Penny for me, but Manu Ginobili is so freaking good at basketball. He's so good. But he played this role where it's like, hey, you're psychotic when you play for 32 minutes. That's how you're going to play. It would be best for us if you come off the bench most of the time. And then also you know, share with these other guys. And he just did that. And I think it's so weird to see like, oh, he only has two all-star appearances because his quality as a player going back to 2000, uh, he's good in the rookie run in the 03 championship. And then in 04, he's really good. And then 2005, he's like, you start talking about him as a top 10 player every year when he's healthy for the next seven or eight years. And that's very similar to Paul Pierce. Except, frankly, I think Ginobili has intangibles off the wazoo. And, again, this is for a video, so I'll just tease it. I won't read out all the numbers. When you look at his performance when, like, Parker's out and he has to do heavier lifting, oh, he's really good at that. And then when you look at his performance when they're all on the court and he has to scale down a little bit but do all the other things, like defend better and pass and finish, oh, his efficiency goes up and his numbers look great. This, to me, is why this guy has some of the best plus-minus impact numbers basically ever on record. He's a phenomenally gifted basketball player. So I think that's even... If we had to pick between them, like splitting hairs there, would you pick Manu over over Parker then? So they both kind of, if I do a longevity perspective for me, they're both very similar. There's no way to really differentiate based on longevity. Um, I think Parker gets undersold by some people, you know, all-star season after all-star season, but not a great peak I like Manu's peak better. I think especially accounting for when Manu was healthy. Should we say Manu? Is that more technical pronunciation? What did I say? And I've been just, I realized I've been saying Manu. I'm getting my Midwestern, Midwestern on. Um, Sorry, I'm just soaking in the trees right now and they're speaking through me. <laughs> I, I'm going to go, I mean, this hurts, but it's, I think it's the right thing to do. I'm going to go Manu in, Parker out. Wow. I I don't know. Maybe. All I know is all three of these guys 
I want Gasol, at least Parker, one. Ginobili. They cannot. All three of them cannot be out. Right. I and want. I, think, it, I want at least one. Yeah. I think. And I, I think two probably need to be. No. 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 I want just to be clear. I want at least one from the Spurs big three alongside oh. Duncan. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I think. What'd you say? Pow. Pow's got to be in. Yeah, he's definitely in. So I, I accept Ginobili over Parker. I I really don't know. That's a really tough hair splitting one. <sighs> yeah, you're probably right though. I just like Ginobili better. So I mean, on one hand, the spirit of this podcast and how we started this is to discuss this and understand that there's probably 95 guys you could have for these 75 spots. And so that's the point of what we're trying to do. On the other hand, I think we've successfully generated enough conversation for a month because they're just some of these pivot points. It's like, how do you know which way to go? I mean, do you have both Parker and Ginobili? I think you have to have at least one. Um, And I think when you talk about the roles on the team, I think Ginobili is probably more irreplaceable. That's a gross sentence. But I think you could have found a pretty solid facsimile to Parker. I don't know if you could have done that with Ginobili. Do you reward uniqueness? this, This goes back to me wanting to put Dennis Rodman on. Like, I don't, I don't know what the right answer for that is because it's kind of an impossible task. LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, these guys are layups. Um, Chris Paul, Kevin Durant. So I got two guys here. One of them, is this right? One of them made the team, one of them didn't. Carmelo Anthony made the team and Dwight Howard didn't? Okay, where are we starting here? Because one of them is going to take a lot of time. Or maybe it won't. I'll just be so angry. <laughs> I... I is that right? Yes. Car- Melo made the team. Carm- Dwight did not. I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. Carmelo Anthony made the team, but Dwight Howard didn't make the team. Okay. Here's the th- When you directly compare them like that, I think that's tough because one obviously should have made it over the other. However, I still think I'm on pro Carmelo Anthony. And I know you're not as sold by the top 10 scoring of all time, but like that's really, really sexy. Like I can't look away from top 10 scoring of all time. Speaking of which, I need to go back to that. Parker is also the only top 10 scoring of all time in pl- in playoff scoring that didn't make the list. So uh, if, if we're using that logic for Melo, I think Parker should have made it in with the voters. Anyway, let's go back to Carmelo. Where does Elvin Hayes rank all time in scoring? <sighs> should we go back to talk about the Knicks again? And I don't no, know no I just want to, if you're going to, if you're going to, be blown away by just volume scoring i want to have an understanding of what we're talking about here camella might be 10th right now where's elvin hayes that's a great question i don't know that off the top of my head let me see if i can find it okay elvin hayes just sec it's like a skinny screen so it's all over the place i don't want aba in here oh funny so That's the sound of inevitability. <laughs> so Carmelo Anthony is 10th all-time in scoring, and Elvin Hayes is 11th. Okay. So. <laughs> okay. That that hurt. That that hit me somewhere really deep. I'm just saying. Having your logic shot through two hours and 18 minutes into a podcast can do to one soul. I'm just saying. Okay. Uh, okay. Carmelo, I went in and out on many times. Let's just, could we just agree, Dwight, I don't know how Dwight Howard doesn't get in. His peak is too good. Ben. What's the conversation? How how did Dwight Howard not make this list? Well, I I think we know. I think we know. No, I don't think we do. Ben. (laughs) When I, I, so so I stacked up a bunch of the players that I thought were like pretty similar. Ben, he had four top five MVP finishes. I know. 
he was he was clear clearly the best center in the league for a solid stretch of time. I don't know how many years it was, but it was clear he was the best center in the NBA. He took he knocked out like apex peak playoff hyper athletic LeBron in the playoffs en route to a finals team where he was the best. Ben, Ben, how did Dwight Howard not make this team? Well, he only has eight All-NBA teams, which apparently is is not very good. Uh, I think this is a situation where going to Los Angeles and kind of flailing out of what has otherwise been the big man factory in Los Angeles and doing it while clashing with a cultural icon. And by the way, he did that after he rushed back from his back surgery, basically. was never the same after his back injury. And then kind of going to these other places and it and because you're in Charlotte, because you're in Atlanta, because you're I guess he was in Houston for a couple years, but again he leaves Houston and Houston gets better because Houston wasn't about defense, they were about Harden ball and D'Antoni ball and, and capturing Maury ball and any other thing you can end a sentence with ball. Um like you have all this stuff, you have the the souring of what happened with Stan Van Gundy at the end of Orlando. Uh, it, he's just a player that it seems like his reputation and his standing like people want to retrofit how good he actually was based on the last six or seven years and i think that has kind of killed his reputation and it goes back to what we talked about the first time i think it came up was unselled and haze just when you go through and you try to create a list like this it's got to feel a certain way as a voter and i think everything that's happened in the last decade with dwight the taste is so sour that I think erroneously they're like undoing how good he was. And I think the weird thing though, to me is as somebody that's, that's thinking about this right now, the Lakers stint with him made me think more of him as a player. Like he was able to recreate himself and at least provide some valuable minutes to a, to a championship team. And obviously it wasn't as like even close to one of the top tier players on the team, but he was able to come back and change himself for that. Like that's really, really impressive. I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I don't know. All right, we got some juicy ones here in the final few minutes. The modern players. Did I say Chris Paul and Kevin Durant? Did we did we get them in? Uh, you said Durant. Chris Paul, yes. Chris okay. Paul. Um, 2010, James Harden, Steph Curry. 2012, Kawhi Leonard. Uh, 2013, Anthony Davis. I think his peak is just too high. Also, Anthony Davis has already made eight all-star teams, so um, he's probably in on longevity as well. Russell Westbrook also in from this class. I, I, Cody, I got to be honest. I deliberated a lot longer than I thought I would on Russell Westbrook. What made you question Westbrook's candidacy? I don't think he has a peak in my book that automatically gets you in for peaks in this conversation. That may feel weird to people who aren't familiar with like Penny Hardaway or Grant Hill. Um, But yeah, I think those guys had better peaks than him. And secondly, because of that, his longevity is weird in that he's like really fallen off a cliff as a player in the last couple seasons. And that's not unheard of players with his style with hyper athleticism um, have had that happen. But he's also just one of these guys that we've talked about that is polarizing. He's got extreme strengths and some extreme weaknesses with his namely with his shot selection and, and defense to a certain degree. And so what does that end up leaving you? I, I just, I thought it was going to be like a shoe-in. And then when I laid it out, I was like, oh, he's actually more of someone who I have to think about and consider. And I think I'm still going to go in with him. I think making this list without him um, 
feels well it certainly feels wrong but just stacking up the impact on the court i think the case is still there but i just was surprised that he doesn't have like this career of just slam dunk all nba seasons for 10 years yeah that's interesting because when when i just think about it off the top of my head westbrook seems like the type of guy i'm going to toss in there i mean i i know it's such a talked about situation but all of his the triples doubles alone like that was just cool it was cool to see a player do that it was cool to see be a player quarterback team as much as he did and while he didn't bring a team to super high heights he was still able to help a lot and do a ton on offense on his own that a lot of other players i don't think would have been able to do um the portability aspect of it i don't really know how well he fits next to other players and i'm really fascinated to see him with the lakers so yeah i mean i i accept you waffling over him more but in in my mind it it, it seemed more like he was a lock but you're probably right there are five spots left and they all come from the last what since 2013 draft class um wow the 2000 so Giannis's 2014 draft class he's in yep i don't think we can we don't need to deliberate on that that leaves four spots the 2013 draft class i will tell you i'm going to take a player from the 2013 draft class oh i think the two best players in that class were damian lillard and draymond green and you're only taking one of those i'm only taking one of them ben ben by the tone of your voice, can I guess that you are not taking Damian Lillard? I'm going to take Draymond Green. You're taking Draymond Green. Both oh, please. Of the, so both, Walk me through this. I, just, I think his peak is good enough. I think his peak is good enough, and it goes back to the conversation with Unseld. It goes back to Ginobili. It's, it's just this idea of a guy who is insanely, absurdly good at basketball. He is the... He is the best defensive player outside of Rudy Gobert of the last decade and you could argue he's better than Rudy Gobert because of what he's done in the playoffs unlocking these death ball small ball lineups he's the one that made this possible I think this goes back to maybe even an argument for including Rodman Um, but like Draymond with that package plus his passing kind of playing like the de facto point guard for Golden State and there was a time when he could actually shoot a little bit and like played was like okay on offense I mean didn't he have like 32 points in game seven of the NBA finals in 2016 yeah he had one of the great game seven games like period not even just like defensive or passing performances like I think it was a triple double it was like a 32 point masterpiece he 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 was so good at his peak. It's the reason why I still think he's an all-star player now, but his not like, I just don't think people realize his numbers, his impact numbers, the fact that golden state was basically a defensive dynasty in the playoffs and that they still take for granted. This goes a separate conversation with Steph Curry, but like Curry and green together, people just sweep that under the rug. Like for me, I need an explanation for how very few people in NBA history have come together as a tandem and played at like 65 to 75 win paces. There's like they're outscoring. If you look at on court per 100 for the team, like what's your point differential? They're like plus 15 sometimes when they're together, plus 17. No one else has these numbers. I just think these guys are off the charts. And I think that's enough for me 
based on peak for Draymond, based on all the other sort of defensive components, things like that. So using your categories that you like to use, you've like you've like GOAT all time MVP, weak MVP. Where do you think Draymond's like twenty sixteen or a couple of year peak lands him? I think it's right on that fringe of weak MVP, which is why why he's on this list basically. I, I think I wanted people in that class and I think he's right on the edge of it. So you think overall his peak is actually stronger than Lillard's? Oh, e- easy. Easy. Yeah, I think Draymond had an argument for like a top five to top seven player in the league. And I think basically we're looking at Lillard's peak and, um, you know, I stacked it up recently in a video. It's, it's, I don't think there's much of an argument for him to crack the top nine. Yeah, I like this pick. I think it seems <laughs> like it's shocking and I think it's a super hot. It seems like a hot take. I, I think Lillard being on the list is actually pretty hot. And I think Draymond definitely deserves to be on there more. I will say uh, Lillard, as we talked about last time, his longevity is sneaky, like he's getting there. But he was another one of these guys that how am I going to differentiate between 30 guys that all have really similar career value and longevity? I don't think his peak is good enough. So when they were talking about the list, I don't even know what day it was when they unveiled it. I forgot who made the point. Maybe it was Kenny Smith. Maybe it was Charles Barkley. But they called Lillard the Reggie Miller of the modern NBA. What's your initial reaction? Oh, wow. Yeah. Turn turn the brow furrowing into a sentence for the audience. What? <laughs> I, I, wait, what? I, feel- I think the, po- the point was like, oh, Reggie Miller, it's all these huge moments in the playoffs. And Damian Lillard also has that same fearlessness. And therefore, they're the same. Oh, no, 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 no. Lillard has a history of falling apart in a lot of playoff situations. Miller's numbers got bonkers every year basically for his entire career for more than a decade in the playoffs. Those, that, that to me is um, latching on to something and making it a narrative without balancing it out with the problems that he's had. And that show would definitely never do that. So that's, <laughs> that's weird. So what do we have, three left? I think so. No, we have two left. I'll be honest. I just agreed with anything you said at that point. It's two left. It's two names it's two left. left. Yep. yep. Um, I think these are... I don't. Are these going to be hot take names they're they're i didn't agonize over either of these so nikola Jokic is a slam dunk to me slam dunk not even i mean he might not be able to slam dunk but there's no way what are you going to do name 30 guys in nba history with a better peak than nikola Jokic? good luck why do you think he didn't make the list um i think it's that international thing we talked about there there are like so how many international players am I up to? Is that like five or six outside of Olajuwon? So. Yeah. I mean, they just got nothing. Matumbo's one, Gasol's two, Parker's three, Ginobili's four for me, Jokic is five for me, and my last guy, number six, Joel Embiid is sixth. I think that one is going to be a lot hotter for people to handle. Can you unpack your Embiid pick? Uh, his peak is there. And if you're going to, I think if you're going to look at like, I always think of him as 1990 Patrick Ewing, but Embiid's scoring is just insane right now. His defense is there. His playoff numbers are there. And for me, it was Embiid or Luka Doncic, honestly. And we talked about this extensively. Luka not really having much of a sample yet to demonstrate just where that peak is, is the uncertainty that keeps him off. Whereas Embiid has had multiple seasons like his impact numbers in the regular season and the postseason are monstrous and if we just stopped the nba tomorrow till the end of time and you're like who are the players you need to talk about who are the 40 best peaks who had these great careers who were part of these big moments um 
unless you just over index on like finals MVPs and things like that, Embiid has got to be part of that based on this peak. Whose peak do you view as being higher, Jokic's or or Embiid's? Oh, Jokic, Jokic. Even with Embiid's defensive impact? Let, yeah, let's let's not talk crazy. Oh, oh, wow. Okay, I like I like feisty Ben at the end of this podcast. <laughs> Which is what happens when we get over two hours in. I mean, Jokic. Okay, here's the simplest way to describe Jokic's standing. If you're just going to go, oh, Bill Walton should obviously be on this peak because of what he's what he was able to do in Portland, then. I'm not saying you have to have Jokic's peak above Bill Walton, but why would you not apply the exact same thing to Jokic? This is just a transcendent basketball player, one of the best offensive players ever, and it gives him one of the better peaks ever. ever. It, it was just a slam dunk to me, Cody. Honestly, I, I didn't even really think much about it. I don't know how to get him off the team. So, okay, none of Embiid, Jokic, or Howard made the actual uh, 75 list. If if you had to lobby for one of those three to make it onto the NBA's official 75 anniversary team, which one of those three are you taking? So I, I think Howard is in a way the biggest snub because he's got a career and a peak argument. But I think you could also make an argument for Jokic. It just the spirit of the way they seem to have approached these things. And I go back to Walton on the top 50 team has always been acknowledging greatness when you see it before your eyes. I think it's the same reason that so many of us nerds lionize Arvidas Sabonis before, you know, the, the curtain fell, that kind of thing. Like, what would he have been like? We just we just saw we're seeing it. We we're seeing it and we just saw it with with Jokic. I, I, I just it's confusing to me. I think, frankly, if. If you took away those guys that had to take up the spots by carrying over from the top 50 list, I wonder how many of these players we discussed would have slotted in, you know, Dwight Howard we would expect, but I wonder if we would have seen a Jokic. I mean, there's only one Jokic, so. There is only one Jokic. That's it. Yeah, That's and the I guess, team. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Based on what you were saying, too, that makes a lot of sense for why you were even considering Luca, like when you're talking about greatness, greatness right in front of you. But I definitely, I know we talked about that. I felt a little bit more uncomfortable with with Doncic because I don't always like giving the benefit of the doubt of like this. We haven't seen this yet, but we're going to see it. And I just, I know he's run into the buzzsaw of the Clippers the last couple of years, and I know Doncic has been incredible, but uh, I still need to see it. I still need to see it. There are so many other names that I could have listed. I'll try to list them out along with the top 75 list for patreon subscribers patreon.com slash thinking basketball that's the best way to support not only this podcast but more videos being made more content being produced if you sign up over there now we've got it's a really fun time to sign up cody we've actually got like 40 old articles that you get as a subscriber and like oh, wow. 11 videos and i want to say 35 either podcast post shows or just um, purely patreon only podcasts. there's a ton of content you can unlock if you sign up over there, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Cody, thank you so much for guiding me and just keeping me under five hours. That was number one. <laughs> it's hugely helpful. And number two, you know, sitting in that sidecar and, and kind of showing me the map when I, when I came to a fork in the road, um, it, it was, it was much needed. I have to say, at the end of this, as my eyes started to gloss over, I'm glad my, my hands were not on the steering wheel. Because I, I don't know if we would have made it home at this point, but we did it. I, I think we did. I think we did a solid job of talking about this over the course of five hours. 
we did it. It didn't take very long. Um, th- <laughs> thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the end. And, of course, wherever you are, I hope that you are having a great day.